through 106. Um, and, and this psalm book functions differently than the others in that it, it works as a poetic recap of all of Israel's hopes. And I, I just wanted to give you a little bit of context just because we're kind of jumping from one book to another book. Even though it's all part of the psalms, it's, it's really vastly different um, sections of this book. And, and the, reca- the, the recap that is given by David is shaped by the promises and it's informed by certain patterns. And so in Psalm 90, you, you see the Mosaic intercession. In Psalm 91, you see the promises to the king from David's line. You see the restatement of Psalms 1 and 2 in the hopes of Psalm 92. You see the celebration of Yahweh enthroned in 93. You see the confidence that Yahweh will avenge in 94. The promise of future rest in a new land of promise in 95. And then the worldwide call to worship in 96. And then they are all joined by the coming of the one revealed at Sinai in Psalm 97. And that gets us to where we're at today and what I want to cover today, which is the summons to praise him for the resolution that he is bringing into the world, the the salvation that he is bringing into this world. And we come this morning at this time, while we celebrate it all the time, but specifically we celebrate the the incarnation, the the beginning of, of this resolution, the beginning of this salvation that was promised way back in book four of the Psalms. And so I want to look at this psalm this morning and walk through it. And, and basically, I just have three sections. The, the first section is there's, there's kind of three stanzas in Psalm 98. So let me tell you what those are, and then we'll read it together as a church. It's a very short psalm. Verses 1 through 3 is going to give us the reason we worship. The reason that we worship. And then in verses 4 through 6, it's going to show us how we should worship. Right? We're, we're coming into a time of worship, a, a time of celebrating the king, celebrating the incarnation. How do we do that? What, what does that look like as a church? And then verses 7 through 9 is, is kind of like the crescendo, and it's going to show us how creation will worship. So we're going to see how we worship as a church, but we're also going to see how the world, how even the mountains, the rivers are going to join in worship with us for what God is doing. So let's read this together this morning. We're going to start in verse 1 of Psalm 98. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. 
the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This psalm starts out in verse 1 by saying, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And this reference here in the immediate context of this psalm is, is one in which every time Israel would go and win a battle, they were to write a new song, right? It's, it, it's not as though they were going to sit there and just rehearse a past victory from a, a past battle over again. It's like, no, God has done something new. He has saved us in a new and different way from this specific enemy. And so the context would be writing a new song that celebrates what God has done and how he has delivered us in a new way, right? Because every battle's different. Every war is different. And so there's a charge here in this psalm that's just titled the psalm, right? This, this psalm was to be remembered and sung, and, and they were charged to, to write a new song to celebrate this new way in which God had delivered his people. But here in Psalm 98, we have another new song because Jesus has come. Jesus has conquered. He, he has come and seen the world and he has seen the sin and the fallenness and experienced every aspect of this world that we live in. And he has conquered See, we as Christians in this time sing a new song, a song of the incarnation, a song of God becoming a little child, unfathomable to our minds. I, I can't imagine the God of the universe, all powerful, wrapping himself in the flesh of a little child, being completely and wholly dependent upon others to care for him. Talk about doing Something new and different. Not, not even the nation of Israel was expecting this kind of deliverance. This kind of Messiah. And Jesus, he lived a marvelous life. He died a marvelous death. And he's risen by a marvelous resurrection. The end of verse 1, for he has done marvelous things. Think about that. Think about what Jesus has done for you and for me. How he has come and fought this battle for each and every one of us this morning. And by his divine power, he then marvelously sends out the Holy Spirit to, to no longer just influence people, but to indwell people. Right? The Holy Spirit's around in the Old Testament, but he's, he's influencing them. He's moving upon them. And Jesus comes and he does a marvelous thing. And he says, I'm sending a comforter who will indwell you in the same way that I came from heaven to indwell a body, to be incarnate here with you, to walk with you and to talk with you. I am now going to send my spirit into you to animate you, to empower you, to lead you. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' disciples have done marvelous things over the years. They've astonished all the earth. I mean, think about it. Idols 
have fallen. Things that people have worshipped are no more now because of Jesus and the message of the gospel that's brought by the feet of the missionaries that go and preach the good news of the gospel. Superstitions have faded away. So many cultures worshiping a moon and a sun and the rain and all of these other things, not knowing the one true and living God, but empowered by his spirit and their boldness to to go and to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. They now know the truth. They're no longer scared of the thunderstorms, thinking that God is angry with them. Empires of cruelty have been overthrown. Government systems that were oppressive and and horrific have been brought to their knees by just the preaching of the gospel. Talk about marvelous things. Jesus has done amazing things through his Holy Spirit and his disciples. And for all of this, he deserves the highest praise this morning. His acts have proved his deity. And therefore, this morning, we we come and we sing unto him as the Lord. But it's not just about these marvelous things. He goes on, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. His right hand there, since the psalmist says that Christ has gotten him the victory by his right hand and his arm, it's not only a demonstration of the divine and infinite power, but also excludes all other means as the merits of saints and their merits works. That's Martin Luther. It's only by Jesus' right hand. That, that's where all the glory goes. It doesn't go to those disciples who went to the ends of the earth. It, it goes to the Holy Spirit, the right hand of God, empowering us to be able to worship and to share the good news of the kingdom. Jesus did not need the help of others. But instead, by his extended hands on the cross of Calvary, his marvelous conquests have been achieved. Sin, death, hell, all fell beneath his solitary power. The idols have fallen. The oppressive systems have been overthrown. And the victories of Jesus among us are even more wonderful because they are accomplished by surprising means. They're not due to physical, to the physical, but to to moral power, the energy of goodness and justice and truth. In a word, it's the power of his holy arm. His holy influence is the sole cause of success. Jesus never stoops to use policy to get what he wants. He he doesn't stoop to use politics to get what he... He doesn't stoop to use brute force to get what he wants. His perfection secured to him the real and lasting victories over all the powers of evil. Right? that's, That's the surprising 
thing about the success of the gospel. It's all the things the world says you need to do, it doesn't do. And yet, it's still one of the most impactful, powerful things. I would argue the most impactful thing in our world. Glory be to the conqueror. Let new songs be played and sung to his praise. Every time we see some new way that he saves us and that the gospel goes forth. He goes on to say, the Lord has made known his salvation. At the end, or at the beginning of verse 2, and by the coming of Jesus and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, by whose power the gospel was preached among the Gentiles. The Lord is to be praised not only for affecting human salvation, but also for making it known. Think about that for a second. Not a single one of us would have ever discovered this on our own. We, we don't just praise him for the salvation. We also praise him for sharing the salvation with us. Not one single person would have figured out for himself the way to mercy through our mediator. In every case, there is a divine revelation to the heart and mind of the truth of the gospel. God's own light, his light, is seen. If God didn't reveal the gospel then none of us would discover salvation. We would all be still wandering around in the darkness, groping, trying to figure out what's going on. But he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He says there in verse 2. And that word righteousness is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul. If you go read the New Testament, he loves to dwell on the Lord's method of making men righteous vindicating the divine justice by Jesus' atoning blood for us this morning. What song should we write about that? Be, being the member of a once fallen race that, that the truth is shared to them and now we are alive. What, what song should we write about the blessed gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Paul says in Romans 1.17. God has not kept his righteousness and his salvation a secret. It's clearly taught in his word. It's been plainly preached by ministers of the gospel to the nations. What was hidden in the types and shadows in the Old Testament is openly seen in the gospel of the New Testament. He has revealed all of that to us. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Who was it that Jesus came in the flesh to? Israel, right? He, he doesn't neglect and forget his chosen people. That is where he sends his very incarnated son to go and preach the gospel first. And though they chose to reject him and his offer of eternal life for the most part, 
Yet God's covenant wasn't broken and the true Israel were called into fellowship and still remain so through his church. The mercy which endures forever and the fidelity which cannot forget a promise. He can't. He's not going to go back on his word. That promise secures his chosen seed to receive salvation guaranteed by a covenant of grace. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. He says there at the end of verse 3. Not to Abraham's seed alone after the flesh, but to the elect among all the nations has grace been given. Therefore, let the whole church sing a new song for the way he is continuing to deliver sinners from the enemy of sin and death and hell. It's no little miracle that throughout all the lands, the gospel should be published in so short a time. Right? We, we live in an information age where you can have an idea and literally it can be everywhere. It wasn't like that. You, you got 12 ragtag guys with no qualifications, no PhDs behind their name, no degrees, right? They're just a bunch of fishermen, common folk. And yet they somehow managed to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. What a miracle that is. We should sing a song about that. Don't you think that, that Pentecost deserves a new song? Don't, don't you think that the passion and the resurrection deserves a new song? Let, let our hearts rejoice and remember it. Our blessed God has been honored by those who once bowed before idols, statues. His salvation has not only been heard, but seen among all people. It's been experienced as well as explained. His son is the actual redeemer of a multitude out of all nations. As Revelation reminds us, we will see one day. So that's why we should worship. That's, a, that's why we should be singing some new songs about how he's delivering us today. Verse 4 through 6 shows us how we should then worship. We've got the why, so how? In these three verses, we're taught how to praise the Lord. Starts out in verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Every tongue must sing and sing from a heart of joy. You know, so many times we, we go and we see a political leader or we see a professional athlete, or we see a celebrity, and we shout out, and woo, we hoop, and we holler over these men or these women. How much more should we sing and yell and express our joy and clap to the God of the world that has extended his salvation to us? 
How loud are the hosannas that we should sing and be full of happiness, not drudgery of, oh, I got to go to worship. I got to sing some songs. No, we get to do this. It comes from a joy that it's deep in our heart that we are brought into this family. We are adopted. He wants us. He loves us. He saved us. If we ever shout for joy, it should be when the Lord comes among us in the proclamation of his salvation through the gospel. John Wesley once said this, sing heartily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead and half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Think about some of them concerts you visited. And how loud you sang there, or how loud you sing in the shower. How much more should we sing for our King? Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. There we're taught that we should use every form of praise. Every kind of music should be pressed into the service of worship until all the accumulated praise reaches his heavenly throne. We should never fear being too loud and magnifying the God of our salvation. The thing we must take care of, though, is that the song comes from the heart. It's easy to sing loudly and not mean it. We need to take care that the song that we sing, it comes from our hearts. Otherwise, the music is nothing but a noise in God's ears. Whether it's caused by the human voice, guitars, or drums, Loudly let our hearts ring out the honors of our conquering Savior. With all our might, let us praise the Lord who has defeated all of our enemies and let us out of the captivity of sin. We will do this best when we are most in love with Jesus. Let me say that again because it's important. We will sing like this. We will praise him like this when we are most in love with Jesus. I love when we sing that song, Is He Worthy? And there's that question at the end, Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? To which we should be yelling and screaming and making a joyful noise. He is! Oh, he is. And so much more. Verse 5, he says, Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Again, skill in music should not be reserved only for the worldly. It should be used by God's people. God's praises should be performed in the best possible manner. 
Again, not for the glory of the musician, but so that there is no distraction as we praise and worship our king. The sweetness mainly, the sweetness of our worship mainly lies in, in spiritual qualities. The harmonies of faith and repentance. The harmonies of obedience and love. There, that's true music in the ear of the Most High. And that pleases Him more than perfectly choreographed praise bands with their emotional tugs at the heart and pleas and, and, and loud rocking music that, that is there to just get your emotions hyped up. Not because of God, but because of your emotions. We, we live in a time where the idea of congregational singing seems to be lost. I, I, I went to a church meeting a couple of months ago, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't even hear myself. I, I'm in the audience. All I can hear is this band on stage doing their thing, and, and, and they were good at it. But that's, that's a concert. That's not congregational singing. That's not praise and worship. That's a concert. And, and so many churches have just turned into that. You know who the lead singer should always be in a church service that is praising and worshiping God? I'll give you a hint. It's not on stage. It's you. Their job is just to lead you into being the main singer. The congregation should be coming together and worshiping. And sadly, so many people have it in their heads that this great worship, it only happens from this part of the stage back here. Not realizing that true worship happens from this part of the stage that way. That's when it's true, meaningful worship. And notice again, as I said a couple of weeks ago, for all those people who argue about not having musical instruments in your worship. Use the lyre, right? A skillful uh, instrument here that, that's capable of great expression. And even in the repetition of the word, it, it's highly poetical, showing that expressions of poetry is just another form of praise. An, another way that we worship God. Some of you are, are beautiful poets, right? New poems about this God of salvation, but it should also teach us that not all repetitions are vain repetitions. There, there's, there's a battle that's, that's being fought by certain corners of the church that, that, that our songs have to be hard and wordy and detailed. I just want to challenge you to go read the Psalms. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repeating, very simple phrases. In our worship songs, we should mirror that. There should be graceful repeats that help emphasize important details. And, and as we repeat those important details, it, it begins to flame one's soul to grow into a worship of their God. This is something we preachers do all the time in our sermons. 
We repeat certain words and certain phrases. Why? Because they're important. And you might not catch them the first time. So that's why it's important that in our songs we have choruses, we have things to where it's almost like you can put your mind on autopilot and not have to think about the wordiness of the words and just sing to your king directly from the heart. With the lyre and the sound of melody, here the author is distinguishing between common speech and a musical voice when he says the sound of melody. You know, our, our voices have many modulations, right? Some of you, some of you have a mom voice, right? You use that mom voice and it gets attention. There, there's the voice we use in conversation, right? That's different than the voice we typically use in public speaking. There's the voice of command. There's the voice of complaint that some of you use too much. But there ought to be with each of us the voice of a melody of praise. Man's voice is at its best when it is singing praises to the one true and living King. We must pay attention to the lyrics of our songs to ensure that the love of God and the victories of Emmanuel have saturated the verses and the choruses that we sing. When you think about your life, do you sing enough unto the Lord? Do you celebrate what, what the season, this season of incarnation means to us? He continues on with the trumpets and the sound of coronet make a joyful noise. Here again, we're reminded that our worship should flow from our, our heart and it should be loud. Think, think about how far a trumpet carries. You can hear a trumpet from a mile away. It, it just, it's one of those instruments that just has this ability to just carry, right? And, and, and the horn, it symbolizes the, the power which we should put forth in worship. It's symbolizing how we should be singing before the king, before the Lord. On coronation days during this time when this was being written, when a, when a beloved king would ride in, the people would shout and the trumpets would sound and the walls would resound with sound of praises for the new king. Shouldn't we be more enthusiastic for a divine king than an earthly leader? Is there no loyalty left among us? Members of this once fallen race now blessed with salvation to sing out his praises. To King Jehovah is his name and there is none like him. Do we not make a joyful noise for him? When we let the reigning power of Jesus seep deep into our soul, 
we're not just going to mumble the lyrics of our songs of praise. Allowing the, the band to just drown out our voice. Instead, our voices shall be raised together so that the congregation will make a joyful noise. So that's why we should worship. That's how we should worship. Lastly, I want you to see how creation is going to join us in ultimately worshiping our King. See, the incarnation is just the beginning of God's plan of salvation. And while his death on the cross did free us from the, the effect and consequence of sin and death, there is yet again a day coming in the future when that victory will be ultimate. We, we have but a mere deposit now. We, we still suffer. We still experience loss. We still suffer the experience of sin and our old man fighting and warring against us. But there is coming a day when all that's going to end. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Now David here, using poetic language, <coughs> is, is envisioning a mighty orchestra made up of nature as it's praising its creator. The, the sea belongs to the Lord, and it's going to praise its maker. Not just sing, right? Notice again, what's the, what's, is it going to just sing a light little lullaby? No, it's going to roar. I, I want you to notice how over and over and over in the psalm, there is this idea and this expression of really singing everything we have to the glory of God. Within the sea is all kinds of wealth and goodness and wonder. You, you, you have to remember Israel is a nation that borders up to a sea. Many got its livelihood from there, whether that was for commerce or, or fishing. The, the sea was an integral, important part of their lives. Why should such a place be denied a place in God's orchestra of nature? You see, for many in this time, the sea was seen as a place of chaos that was uncontrollable, beyond God's control. Here the psalmist is reminding us that there is nothing beyond God's control. Even the thing that you think is the most chaotic in this world is going to praise him. Its deep base will excellently suit the mystery of the divine glory of God. The world and those who dwell in it, he continues in verse 7. The land shall be in harmony with the ocean. Its, its mountains and plains, cities and villages shall be the voice of jubilee which welcomes the Lord of all. Nothing can be more inspiring than this verse. Yet no song is equal to the majesty of the theme when our king is to be praised. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. The, the rolling rivers, the, the roaring waterfalls are here summoned to pay tribute and to clap their hands as men do when they greet 
their leaders with applause. In the same way, the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and, and everything is going to be applauding. Let the hills sing for joy together, or, or in other words, in concert with the floods. Silent as the mighty mountains are. They're going to forget themselves in this moment. I think about that sometimes. We, we got opportunities to go to Yellowstone many times and take college students on mission trips out there and work with churches in those areas. And, and on our off times, we would be able to kind of shoot into the parks and just, and just see how amazing it is. But, but one of the things that struck me was also how quiet it is. You're, you're, you're deep into the park. You're long away from any sound of, of a city or industry or roads. And these mountains are just quiet. And yet here, David is envisioning a time in which those mountains are going to be singing. They're going to be joining in with the chorus of nature and praising their king. All of earth is going to be cheering. All of nature is celebrating the restoration of the world. No more death, no more sin, ruling over creation. Every, even the rocks, as it says in the New Testament, will cry out in praise at the return of the king. But why are they praising? Verse 9, before the Lord he comes to judge the earth. Now, quieter music, such as what the, made the stars twinkle, were better suited at the first coming at Bethlehem. Remember the, the wise men were guided by a star that it didn't make any noise. It was very quiet. Announcing this new thing that God was doing. This new victory that God was winning for us. But the second coming, the second advent, that calls for trumpets. That calls for creation singing because he is a judge. And for that, all of earth is going to cheer at his royal splendor. The rule of Christ is the joy of nature. No longer will it have to suffer under the weight and penalty of sin and death. All things in his creation bless his throne and the very coming of it. The approach of Jesus' universal reign makes every part of creation sing praise to him. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. See, this is the ultimate joy of it. His judgment. That, this is confusing to us. Because we live in a time where we're not supposed to be judgmental. We're not supposed to judge. But, but the thing that we have as Christians to look forward to is the day that God comes and makes all things right. That requires a judgment. Therefore, that requires joy and worship and praise on behalf of his people. Because we know all things will be made right. All things will be restored. There will be no more death. There will be no more separation. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more hospital beds. 
All of those things will be judged. No tyrant to oppress the good will remain. No no person to indulge the vain will remain. Because his law is good. Jesus' actions are right. And his government embodies, or is the very embodiment of justice. If ever there was something to rejoice in while living in the midst of a broken and fallen world, it's the coming of such a deliverer. The ascension to the universal throne as our ruler supreme. All hail Jesus. All hail. Our our soul should delight at the sound of his approaching return and lead us to cry out, Come quickly, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. See, this morning we're celebrating the new song of Jesus. It starts at Christmas. It starts at the incarnation. But this is where it it comes to its ultimate end. And this morning I hope, and it is my prayer, that each and every one of you here in this room knows this Jesus. Because you live in a moment, in a time where you have an opportunity to know him as Redeemer. But as this psalm points out, there is coming a time where the only way you're going to get to know him is as a judge. And at that point, it's too late. But while it is still today, while you still have time, it's my hope and my prayer that you would come and meet the Redeemer that we worship and that we sing praises about our King Jesus Our king who came and laid down his life so that we might live. So that sin and death would be conquered. And for the rest of us who know this Redeemer, Jesus, I hope and I pray this challenges you the next time you you stand up to sing praises to him. The next time you worship him. Not because I'm telling you to, but because your heart is filled with the joy of the new victory that he has won in your life and in your heart. And how he took a once dead man or woman and brought them back to life so that they might have life eternal. Let's pray, Father.